Uh, we're going to start off by, by, again, group therapy. We're going to start off just by, by show of hands. How many of you, right, how many of you growing up as kids had an imaginary friend? Just show of hands. They're, okay, right on. Right on. That's, that's more than I thought. Anybody still have one? Right? Okay, very good. Let's talk afterwards. I got, I got some, uh, some, yeah, we can do that. So let me just say personal, personal confession or vulnerability, right? Um, some of us, we had, we, have, we had imaginary friends growing up or an imaginary friend. I had an army. I had a small army of imaginary friends. My imaginary friend crew rolled like 10 deep, right? So I had an entourage that went with me everywhere I went. Um, and here's the thing. One person's crazy is just another person's good imagination. Uh, my, you know, my mom would say things like, well, he's just got a really good imagination. And people were like, uh-huh, call the police. Um, like, we should get someone involved here. So, again, just putting myself out there, right? My, my, my right-hand man, my right-hand man, imaginary friend, uh, was named Googie. Yep, Googie. Um, and, and usually when something, usually when something went bad or something broke, uh, either Googie did it or Googie made me do it. So, like, Googie lived to be the fall guy. He's like, I'll fall on the sword, Brad. This one's, I got this one. Okay, bud. Right? And also, so we, we also learned I'm pretty susceptible to peer pressure. Um, Googie could get me to do all kinds of crazy things. I also had another imaginary friend named Brother. Uh, brother liked to cuss. Right? Brother liked to cuss a lot. Um, and my mom would tell me, like, listen, here's the deal. When, when brother cusses, you get in trouble, right? So I looked at brother. I'm like, brother, you got to cut it out. Man, it's my butt on the line here, okay? Uh, my, my, I, I've been told stories, again, about a time that I freaked out one of our babysitters because I told her about my, and where this comes from, I don't know. Uh, I told her about my imaginary friend, Ted, that liked to watch us through the window from out in the front yard. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, right? It's one of those things, like, I, I promise you, like, pr people are thinking right now, like, honey, like, grab, this, grab the things, just go to the car, grip, we'll, I'll get the kids, right? let's get out of here. Uh, but here's the, it's, it, it's funny, it's funny that we can laugh at some of these stories that our imaginary friends, these times that we let our imaginations kind of run away with us, they, they, run, they run wild, right, when we were kids growing up. But you fast forward to now, you fast forward today as we start talking about the things beneath the things in our lives, right, when our triggers, we've talked about this the last couple weeks, when our triggers, those emotions and feelings that kind of surround these painful events in our lives, when those triggers kind of push back against us, those emotions and feelings that we experienced in the past, like they kind of flood into our present, they feel similar they remind us of these painful or these scary or these traumatic moments. Like all that stuff that we tried to bury a long time ago, it just won't stay buried. Maybe that's you. It won't stay buried, right? And, and now it kind of fights back and it's trying to kind of get back up to the surface. It's, it's trying to get loose. It's trying to make it out. And if that happens, if that happens when those triggers, those emotions, those feelings, when they push back against us, if that stuff gets to the surface, right, people are going to find out the truth. People are going to find out the truth that, that maybe our lives aren't really what we want them to believe that they are, right? That our surface life isn't real. It's not who we are. It's just what we want people to see. It's what we want them to believe is real and true about us. So when we get triggered, right, this, starts to, this stuff kind of starts to bubble up. What do we do? We run to our hideouts. We run to these places that we think that we can escape, that we can kind of self-soothe, that we can self-medicate. But here's what happens, and we talked about this last week, the more of the perceived danger and threats that we face, the longer we stay hidden. The longer we stay hidden in our hideouts. And so what happens is our temporary hideouts that we just kind of go to escape and wait for, like, everything to blow over, those temporary hideouts turn into permanent residences. We, we start to live there. And when that happens, 
like a hideout turns into insecurity, right? When, when, that, when that temporary hideout turns into a permanent residence, it becomes kind of this resident insecurity, right? Our identities, we talked about this last Sunday, our identities get hijacked by our insecurities. And they start to make identity statements, right? We don't just feel scared anymore. We are scared. See the difference? Right? We don't just feel hurt. We are hurt. Our insecurity kind of becomes how we live, and it becomes what we live in. Our insecurities get on board, and they root us in, and they rule us through pain, fear, and hurt. Insecurity, like I said, turns our temporary hideouts into fortresses. Right? We fortify this. We armor up. We power up. We perform up. We perfect up. We pretend up. We please up. Whatever it is we need to do. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of this going on, right, our triggers, our insecurities, our hideouts, in the midst of all that going on, right, instead of creating cute, maybe fun, invisible friends and characters, here's what our imaginations do. Our imaginations create narratives that are, that are based on an alternate reality. And we use these narratives to justify the way we live our lives. Now, let me just explain, because we're going to talk about justify a lot today. So when you see this word justify, here's how you kind of need to understand it. Justify is really pretty much the same as saying just as if I. Right? So a lot of times before, like as we're thinking about, you know, the, in these moments of insecurity or in these moments of, of, of places where we're scared, right, those kinds of, we, we start to kind of think about, well, here's what I need to do. Well, I'm not sure if that's the right thing. Yeah, but I can justify that. So even before we go out and do the things that we think are going to make us feel better or soothe us, or those, those kind of, before we do it, we justify it. We justify it here and here, which is really the exact same thing as saying just as if I. Right? So when we, when we talk about the way we justify, this is the best way to understand that. Right? So justifying something is essentially, it's, it's, it's creeping up to that line of going, well, it's, it's just as if I. I haven't done it yet. I haven't made this choice yet. But I'm already kind of letting my head and my heart go to that space. So really, it's just as if I've already done this, right? So, so Steve Carter, who writes the book, The Thing Beneath the Thing, here's one of the things that he says about this whole thing, this narrative thing that kind of starts to take place within us. He says, most of us have an internal dialogue that helps us process the information that we receive about our experiences and interactions. He said, this part of the process can sometimes lead us down a path of denying reality, by a way of storytelling. Now, if you, if, you're, if you want to take notes, there's a really easy way to do this. You can just take a picture of the screen. Like, that's the easiest way to take notes here. But, but I want you to get this, right? So it leads us down a path of denying reality by way of storytelling. Here's what, if you want to know a real easy way of figuring out what lives above the surface and typically what gets shoved below the surface in our lives, kind of below that waterline, the things that live below the waterline are usually the things that we hide, repress, and deny. Right, So the thing that we hide, I don't want anybody to see this. The thing that we try to shove down, it's like, no, listen, I, like, that, 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 I don't want anybody to know this part about my life. I'm going to suppress this. I'm going to repress this. I'm going to make sure I don't feel this. Or deny, right? To flat out in our brains go, yeah, that didn't really happen. I'm denying it. So this, these narratives, what they begin to do is they begin to shove things down below the surface, right? Because the things that live below the surface are the things that we hide, repress, and deny. So we're going to look at a story uh, today about a guy named David, right? David's pretty famous. He's a, he's a, he's a famous king uh, of Israel. The, the Israeli flag still today bears his symbol. That star is the star of David. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you need a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. They're free. You can take one home. We want you to have one. So grab your Bible or Bible app, 2 Samuel, Old Testament, 
Um, it is uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Here's what it says. Here's what it says. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the, the, the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Time out. Let's press pause. Because here's the thing. In, in verse 1 of this chapter, you can kind of already see that something's up. Right? It's like, it's like when you watch movies like Titanic, which is like, why'd you go see Titanic? I just want to see how it ended, right? No, you know how it ends, right? Like you, you watch movies like, like Apollo 13, movies about kind of some of these historic disasters that take place. Like you, you know something bad's going to happen. You know something's up. You know something is, is going to go kind of crazy or kind of haywire, right? We learn in verse 1, right off the bat, something's up. Something's about to happen. So let's unpack what it says. Right off the bat, Samuel tells us that it's springtime. Right? That's significant. That's the time, like Samuel says, that's when kings go out to war. That's when kings go off to fight. That's real. Like, that's a real, that's a real thing. It's like, you know, we've got, like, wedding season, right? It's pumpkin spice latte season. They had war season back here. And it was in the spring, right? So it was in the spring. The month of March I just learned this, you all may know this, Rick, duh, Brad. I just learned this this week, kind of blew my mind. The month of March is named after the Roman god Mars, who is the god of war, right? So the month of March is, it's war month, right? That's when we go off to war. That was the month, that's the season when people go off to war. And here's, here's why. Spring was a time when back in these days, right, the roads, they didn't have paved roads, right? So in spring, when it warmed up, right, the roads became more passable, so you could get your armies down the roads, right? You could get your horses and your chariots down the roads. In addition to that, in the spring, that's also when most fields and, like, trees and would start to kind of grow fruit. And so kings knew, right, here's two things. The roads are good, and the fields and trees, they're in bloom, so we're going to have food along the way. Like, they would kind of just eat in fields and eat off trees. Like, we knew, like, the roads are good, and there's, there's a food supply. So let's go to war, right? This is the time to go off and fight. So, here's what happens. It says this, David sends Joab and his own personal servants, and Samuel says, all of Israel, off to fight against the Ammonites. But David stays behind. Like, that should kind of be our first inclination of going, something's not going to, like, something's up here. Something's not going to go well here. One of the, the commentaries that I read this week says this, that, that we're under the impression, based on what Samuel says, we're under the impression that every able-bodied man in Israel goes to war, except for the king, except for David. He sends every dude, right, that can go fight, off to fight, and he stays behind. And it says this, that staying home was actually not David's usual practice. See, David was a fighter. Like, you see this all throughout Scripture, and we'll talk about this here in a minute. But, but David wasn't afraid of a fight. Like, he was a fighter. David went off to war. David had been, he had lived in that, right? So it said it's not, not only is it not David's usual practice, here's the thing. In this day, leading your troops into battle was the expected kind of, it was one of the expected, like, major external activities for kings and ancient rulers. There was this expectation that when March comes around and it's war season, right, that the king goes with the army. Like, that's kind of one of the things that you do, right? You're the alpha, right? Like, the alpha, like, we, we expect the alpha to go out and, and fight on our behalf. And there's pretty interesting research about all of this, right? So, so 
again, another one of the, the things, another article I read said that this, that David's decision to stay behind in this day would have been reprehensible in and of itself. All right, that was the words that he used, reprehensible. That's a strong word. Like, good gosh. Like, what are you doing? Like, what? Like, gross, David. You stayed behind. Like, what kind of a leader are you? What kind of a king are you? It definitely would not have gone over well. Now, here's the thing. We don't know why David stayed back. The Bible doesn't tell us why David stayed back and he sent every other dude off to war. But here's what we do know. Something we've been talking about every week in the series is that Bible people are just people people. A lot of the times when we think about people in Scripture, a lot of times we think about people in the Bible, we go, well, there's something special about them. That's how they made it in the Bible and that they're different than us. Nope, they're just like us. Even kings, even people like David, right? They're just like us. David, like you and I, had triggers, right? David had triggers. Triggers that, that just like you and me, kind of break into our present, and they remind us of like these painful moments and painful experiences in our past. Like that's what a trigger is. It's, this, it's, it's this, this painful moment or this painful feeling or this painful thing that in our past that kind of breaks into our present. David had that just like you and I do. So just for some context, the majority of David's life, he's really known nothing but war and fighting. Like David has been at war or he's been fighting some kind of battle or he's been fighting something or someone for most of his life. David, when he was a boy, the Bible tells us he was a shepherd, right? And, and it tells us, the Bible tells us that, that David, as a shepherd protecting sheep, that he would fight off bears and lions, right, to, to, to keep the, the sheep safe. David, when he was a teenager, he killed Goliath, the giant, and cut off his head, right? When he's, like, we're just trying to get our driver's license. David's, like, cutting people's heads off, right? That happened when he was a teenager. David served under King Saul, right? And the Bible tells us that there was this song that people would sing, that Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. And here's the thing. He served. David served under King Saul and went to war for King Saul and won battle after battle for King Saul. And on top of that, right, one of the things we learn is that Saul, crazy insecure, Right, if you're, if you're in one of our, our, our D groups, one of our home groups, we talked about Saul in our groups, you learned Saul's a pretty insecure guy. So when people start ta talking like good stuff about David, like David's killed 10,000, right? Saul, what have you done? Saul then tries to have David killed several times in several different ways to the point where David takes some of his guys that he fights with and they go hide out in caves. They live in caves because Saul is out to kill him. So who knows, Right? I'm just putting two and two together here. I'm trying to read this story kind of through the lens of my own life, right? Maybe, maybe David saw that the calendar was about to shift over to March, and he remembered that's when we go to war. And remembering that's when we go to war squeezed all of those triggers. All that past hurt, all that past hurt flooded into his present. And maybe he thought to himself this, what if we lose? What if we go off and fight, and what if we lose? What if, what if somebody tries to kill me again? What if I have to go, what if I, what if I, what if somebody cuts off my head? What if I have to go hide and live in a cave again? Like we can only imagine, like you can only imagine the kind of PTSD that lived in someone like David having gone through all that he's gone through, right? Those things beneath the things in David's life started to push back against him, which led him to do what? Hide out. What did that look like for him? I'm not going to war. I'm not going to fight. Which on top of everything else, 
David knew that's the wrong thing to do. Like it's, 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 not, it's not right for me to hide out. I, it's not right for me to stay here and send everybody else. So again, now he gets himself stuck in a cycle where it's like, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. But yeah, this is the wrong thing to stay. It's the wrong thing to stay. And so he doesn't want to go. He's afraid. But he also knows it's the wrong thing to stay, so now he's ashamed. His temporary hideout, David's temporary hideout, turned into a permanent place for him to live, which you and I know. Here's what happens. When our identity gets hijacked by our insecurity, we do crazy stuff. And in this case, instead of going off to war with the rest of the guys, David stayed literally tucked into his fortress of insecurity. Here's what it says, starting in verse 2. It says, it happened. There you go. This is where you know. It happened one late afternoon. And maybe some of us, as we read this story, go, there's that it happened one late afternoon in our own stories. There's an it happened moment in our own stories. It happened this day, it happened this night, it happened this weekend, it happened right here. It happened one afternoon, Samuel says, when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and she was beautiful. See, Samuel, what he does, and I love the way he writes, he drops little hints of information that might seem small and insignificant, but really they're massive and what they mean and what they imply. The fact that he gives us the time of day, he says that it happened one late afternoon. The time of day is mentioned because this is the time of day later in the afternoon when most people in Middle Eastern countries went outside to bathe. Why? Because you're past the hottest part of the day, right? It's, it's, it's the worst, right? When, especially in like the middle of the summer here in Louisville when it's like 1,000% humidity and like the heat index is 500. And you're like, I'm going to go take a shower. And then you instantly start to sweat again. Dead gone, right? Like, stop sweating, you know, like, what, what can we do? So it's, that's why they, the hottest part of the day is past. We can go bathe because we're not going to get all sweaty again, right? So here's what we know. The guys are all gone. All the dudes are gone to war. So the time of day when most people went out to bathe, most people were all of the women. So David knew this. David knew because he would have known. This is the time of day most people go out to bathe. He also knew that from his vantage point in the king's house that he could see most of the rooftops where people would be bathing. So David, he knew the time of day, he knew the when, he knew the where, and he knew what he was going to see. So you got to ask yourself, why in the world, why in the world did he walk through that door and up those stairs and out onto the roof? He knew what he was doing. He knew. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what he was going to see. He walked himself into temptation. He walked himself into a trap. Steve Carter, he says this. He says, we often choose to soothe ourselves by taking some pet distractions into hiding with us. So we tell ourselves that we've earned it, that we deserve a reward, that we seek out our desires, and then we justify that we deserve them with this kind of narrative that we create, a narrative of our own invention. And then once we create that narrative, he says, now we demand to satisfy those desires. Anything, anything to avoid dealing with the thing beneath the thing. Any way I can avoid that. And so here's, here's kind of how this plays out. Here's how our internal narratives play out. Deserve, desire, demand. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you're taking pictures, take a picture of that, right? 
So when it comes to ourselves, because there's really two ways our narratives play out. They play out kind of internally and externally. This is, way, this is the way that, for the most part, they play out internally, inside of us, right? How they form as it relates to us. This is how they take shape. And ultimately, how they convince us, how these narratives convince us to pursue them. Like, think about it. When you're in your fortress of insecurity, my guess is this. You've heard it, and you've felt it. You've heard this kind of voice, this thought that says, hey, you know what you deserve? You deserve something to make you feel better. You need a reward for all the hard work that you're doing and everything that you're doing to keep the the things beneath the things hidden in your life. You need a reward for, look how hard you're working to kind of build the surface life that people are really believing and buying into that this is who, like you need a reward and then there's a part of us that goes, yeah, you know what? I think I do. I guess, thanks. Like, I do deserve that. And then that voice says, well, what do you want? And that's the million-dollar question. What do you want? You deserve it. What is it that you want? Or maybe, who is it that you want? What is it that's going to make you feel better? Come in a bottle? What is it that's going to make you feel better? Something that you can get your hands on? Who is it that will make you feel better? Who's that person that pays a little, little more attention to you? You like that attention. That, t- that attention feels good. Who is it? Who is it that you want? See, what happens is this. Once we get whatever or whoever we want in our sights, that's when the demand kicks in. And that voice says, you deserve it, you want it, so go get it. And if they won't give it to you, then take it. Go take it. I read a lot of Brene Brown. Like today's sermon is brought to you by Brene Brown and Steve Carter, right? Here's what she says. She says, never before has an adult cohort in the United States, that's all of us together, right, been more in debt, been more medicated, been more obese, or been more addicted, She said the reason for this is that we, human beings, we cannot selectively numb our individual feelings. You can't just go, you know what I want to numb out? You know what I want to kind of forget about is that one moment. You know what I want to numb out? I want to numb out just this one fear, this one little fear I have. I want to numb out this one tiny insecurity. You can't do that. You can't really selectively numb one thing. So what do we do? We numb out everything. We just go totally numb. And here's the kicker. All of this, all of this comes from one-sided conversations with our grown-up imaginary friends that look like us and sound like us. See, the thing is, the truth is, I'm guessing the majority of us in this room, we've got a grown-up imaginary friend. That imaginary friend just kind of happens to look like us and sound like us. And so we don't even realize that it's an imaginary friend. Here's what happens. They, they do all the talking, right? That voice does all the talking. We just listen and justify. That's all we do. We listen to that voice and we justify. You know what? You're right. I do deserve this. You're right. Like, finally, someone, my imaginary friend finally went, hey, Brad, thanks for all the hard work that you do. You deserve fill in the blank. You know what? You're right. I do. I do. I'm listening to you. Like, what else do you got? Like, 
What else you got to say? Bring it on. Like, what, what, you know what? You should go get that. Yeah, you're right. I should. I should go get that. I should go do that. I should, whatever it is. See, here's what happens, though. When we use these imaginary narratives to justify in our heads and our hearts, it's only a matter of time before a fictional narrative turns factual. And for us, it looks like this. Justifying, like we said, here in our head and in our heart. When we start to justify, when we start to justify here and here, it's essentially saying it's just as if I. Well, I haven't done it yet, Brad. Yeah, but you know what? You're starting to go there. And so it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time for justification in our heads and in our hearts will turn to just as if I with our hands, with our outside world. It's just a matter of time. I'm telling you, I've lived this. I know it. So you and I, we can pretend all we want that these narratives that we make up, they don't affect anybody else. Brad, it's just me, right? It's just my life. Here's the truth. It affects everybody around you, right? That narrative wants you to believe that you buying that lie, just really, it's you. No, it's everybody. Check it out. It's the same for David. Starting in verse 3, it says this. And David, he sent and inquired about the woman. So that's the deserved desire demand, right? So David, he sees Bathsheba, right? Sees her across the way. She's pretty. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to inquire. I'm just asking questions. Like, who, do you know who she is? Like, that's deserved desire demand. It's already starting to kick in. I deserve this. I desire this. I want this. So I'm going to figure out a way to make it happen. I'm the king. One of his servants said, is, is, is it not, is not this Bathsheba, right, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Yeah. That's who that is. So David, it says, sent messengers and took her. Not a mistake. Not, not an arbitrary word. He took her. He demanded it. I deserve it. I desire it. Now I'm going to demand it. And it says she came to him and he lay with her. And it says now she'd been purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, right? You know, you got that. Then it says that she returned to her house. And it says that the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. This is a real life result from an imaginary narrative. See that? The justify turned into just as if I. And you think, well, surely, surely at this point, right? Surely at this point, it's like David's going to stop the nosedive that he's in, right? Wrong. He does what a lot of us do. Thinks to himself, well, I narrated my way into this. I can probably narrative my way out. And so, you know, he gets a message to Joab, his general, who's leading the army where David's supposed to be. And he says, Listen, hey, Joab, Tell Uriah, like, come back home. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, tell him to come back home. Turns out, Uriah is like the most noble dude on the planet, right? Like, he, he has, Uriah has no idea all that's gone down in Jerusalem, right, between David and his wife, right? He has no idea. Why? Because Uriah has been out fighting for David. So David looks at Uriah and says, hey, listen, uh, come back home, go wash up, go clean yourself up, and you know what, go to your house. Go home, Uriah. You've been, home, you've been out fighting, go back to your house. Get this, not only does Uriah not go home, he sleeps on the floor in front of David's house. And David, I know, right? David calls him back in, and he says, why, why didn't you go back to your house? Why didn't you go back to your house last night, man? Check out what Uriah says in verse 11. 
says, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and, and, and the servants of my lord, they're camping in an open field. Shall I go then to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? No. How is this fair? How is it fair that I get to be called back? How is it fair? Like, all, David, all the guys, all the army, they're out, they're sleeping in tents, like they're out in fields, they're fighting, right? And I get called back, I will not do this. And, and again, most noble dude on the planet looks at David and says, as, as surely, right, as you live, David, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David's got to be going, good grief. This guy's a saint. This dude's incredible. But then David, still like, all right, I narrative my way in. I can narrative my way out. Here's what we'll do. Have Uriah come to my house tonight. And here's what I'll do. I'll get him liquored up, and then I'll send him back to his house. Right? We'll, we'll bring those inhibitions down just a little bit. Then we'll see what happens. Uriah does the same thing. Sleeps on the floor outside of David's house. So David thinks to himself again, all right, narrative my way in. I can narrative my way out. Send a message to Joab. It says this, hey, Joab, Uriah is coming back to you, so when you go out to fight, when he gets there, when you guys go out to fight the next day, put him on the front line. Put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is the fiercest, and then when the fighting, when the fighting starts to get fierce, put him on the front line and then back away and make sure he doesn't make it. He'll die a war hero. The headlines will be fantastic. Verse 22, it says this. So the messenger went and came to David, goes, comes back, right? Comes back from Joab, came to David, and, and tells him everything that Joab had told him to, to tell. The messenger said to David that, that, that here's what happened. The, the, the men, the Ammonites, the, the, the bad guys, right, they, they gained an advantage over us. They came out against us in the field. We drove them back to the entrance of the gate. But then here's what, here's what happened. They started shooting bows and arrows. The archers, they, they, they shot at your servants from the wall. And here's what happened, David. Some of your servants are dead. Uriah the Hittite's one of them. Do you get this? Like, Uriah's not the only one that died. Like, David is so caught up in this narrative, trying to narrative, way, narrative his way out of something, that, like, the blast radius has now started to extend to other innocent people. It's not just Uriah, the most noble dude on the planet, that gets caught in the midst of this. It's other people as well. It's, we are crazy to think that our narratives don't hurt other people. Here's what David says. He says, David said to the messenger, thus, here's what you shall say to Joab. Don't worry about it. Don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours one, one now and, and, and then another. Basically this, it happens. Right? It's war. People die. And David says, strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and, and encourage him. And it says this, when the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Tracks covered, right? Like, I, like David, now Uriah, the war hero, thank you so much, Uriah, for going out and fighting for Jerusalem. I'll now do my part, and I will take your wife, your wife to be my wife, right? That's what, I'm just doing my part now as king, right, to, to, to care for a war hero's widow, right? I'll make her a part of my family. David's like, tracks covered. Did it. Not so fast. Here's what it says. But the thing that David did, right, the thing that David had done, 
displeased the Lord. It's like the oh shoot moment. And we've all had those, right? See, here's the thing. It's easy to kind of read this story and, and it's the story of David and Bathsheba and kind of Monday morning quarterback the whole thing. It's easy to stand outside of the story and like point out all the places where, where David loses track of reality and, and starts following these narratives that, that were formed in, in his imagination. In fact, when Nathan comes to confront David, Nathan tells David this story, this story about a man and goats and this, this, this rich man takes, takes this poor person's sheep, this poor person's goat and slaughters it and eats it. And David's like, you know what, that rich guy that took, this, per- took this, this sheep from this person, that guy should be killed. That guy should die. And Nathan goes, you're that guy. Dang. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback this. It's easy to get so caught up in the narrative that we can't even see the person that's doing the harm is actually us. We do it too. Brene Brown says this, human beings, and I love this, we're meaning-making machines. We love to form meanings, right? We form stories as a means of self-protection or self-preservation. When something triggers our emotions, we often immediately create a story to help attach meaning to whatever happened or what's happening or maybe what's going to happen. And these stories, right, this is the external piece, these stories are usually one-sided, worst-case scenario, and seldom contain the truth. So we talk about kind of the internal dialogue and the internal narrative of of I deserve this, I desire this, I'm going to demand it. This is the external piece. This is kind of how we look at the world around us. It's usually one-sided, it's worst-case scenario. She goes on and says this, and I thought this was crazy, that, that our brains actually reward us chemically when we come up with a plausible story. You know, like, maybe you're, maybe you're on the phone with a boss or somebody in your family you're dealing with, you're, you're, you're navigating some maybe difficult stuff or having a difficult conversation. And, and, and all of a sudden, like, they're on the phone and then they're not. And your phone does the boop, 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 like they're gone. Call failed. They ended the call. What's that narrative that starts to form? They hate me. They hung up on me. What, what did I say? They, they hate me. They hate me. And you know what they're doing right now? They got off the phone with me, and I guarantee you, they've, they're like, they've got a group call of a 1,000 people, and they're all talking bad about me. I, I guarantee you that's what's happening. That's the narrative. That's the narrative. One, worst case scenario, one-sided, not even the truth. Here's the truth. Their cell phone battery died. Yeah, sorry, my battery died. Drove through a rough, drove through a dead cell spot. Or you want to know what's, what's even worse? This is just me. Maybe I'm just projecting, right? So deal with it, all right? When you're texting someone and you see the three dots appear at the bottom, that's like they're responding, and then the three dots disappear, and there's no message that follows. Whoa. How many of us just got triggered? (gasps) That's the worst. Because you're like, what can't they say? What is it they want to say to me that they can't? What is it that they're hiding, right? What is it that, what do you, what do you want to say to me that you can't say? Just say it. When the truth is, hey, sorry, forgot to text you. I had to run into a meeting. My bad. Meanwhile, like, you've been s- just sweating, right? What is it that, that this relationship is over? Our friendship is over. They hate me. I'm going to be fired. Whatever it is. It's like, hey, my bad. Sorry. Had to run into a meeting. Forgot to text you back. My bad. 
what were you thinking, right? Like what we do is the, we do the, hey, it's okay, it happens. When in, in our heads, it's like we want to grab him by the shirt and go, don't you ever do that again. Right? Because the narrative that forms in our head drives us crazy. So how do we deal with this? First, we've got to connect some dots between, between what narratives are and why we believe them. And so let's just put all of this together. Here's what a narrative is. A narrative is a self-protecting, self-preserving story that we tell ourselves to help us navigate and make sense of triggering situations that feel dangerous and threatening. That's what a narrative is. Take a picture of that. That's what a narrative is. Why do we do this? Why do we believe these narratives? Here's why. Buying a lie feels better and safer than facing the truth that might also carry the possibility of living in shame. See, that's, that's what's at the core of all this. And I know in our, our women's group on Wednesday nights, they've been talking about shame for like the last five weeks, and they're probably going like, don't you do it. All right, we're going to talk about shame a little bit more. Okay, sorry. Here's what happens, right? Shame, when we press in, when we press deeper and deeper and deeper below the surface, below the waterline in our lives, what happens is we will eventually at some point run into shame. Shame is one of the ultimate things beneath the things. Shame kind of lives at this place below the surface where it's dark and it's cold and there's very little light and you just don't want to go there. Brown says that shame plays two tapes. Two tapes that we listen to. The first one says, you're not blank enough, whatever it is. Smart enough, rich enough, pretty enough, whatever it is. You're not blank enough. And she says this, if you can get past that one, the next tape that shame starts to play is, who do you think you are? So if we can, if we can somehow muster up enough strength to get past the you're not whatever enough, Shame then comes right back, right? It's like left, jab, right, cross, right? It's, it's like, who do you think you are? When our insecurities hijack our identity, shame, what it does is it piggybacks in. Shame likes to ride out of the coattails of insecurity. And once shame gets into our, our identities, it sets up like concrete around our hearts and our souls. And just so we know what we're talking about, we talk about shame and guilt. They're actually two different things. Guilt focuses on behavior. Shame focuses on self. Guilt would say, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Get it? How different those things are? I can't speak for you. I can just speak for me. Shame leads me to despair. And for me, despair feels like death. Like someone threw you out of an airplane, and instead of a parachute on your back, they strapped a boulder to your chest. And you're just falling faster and faster and faster. That's what shame feels like. Shame is a black hole. It feels, it feels inescapable. It feels like it's going to crush our souls, right? And so, of course, when shame kind of piggybacks in and rides the coattails of our insecurities, what are our brains going to do? The brain, the brain is an organ in the body whose sole purpose is self-preservation, right? Your brain is designed to keep you alive. Some people's works better than others, right? So it's designed to keep you alive. So when we start to feel shame, and if shame feels like death, what do our brains do? They try to keep us alive. It searches for meaning. Hey, just tell me a story. Tell me a story, make up a story so I get some kind of understanding of why shame, like why are we feeling shame right now? Well, here's why. The brain goes, oh, thank you. 
we, if we can just try to tell ourselves some story to make shame make sense, to numb that pain. Here's what Brene Brown says. Shame needs three things to grow. Secrecy, silence, and fear of judgment. And that's usually what our narratives tell us. The narratives tell us, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Cover your tracks. Keep it secret. Keep it hidden. Hey, hey, hey don't talk about this. Stay silent. Don't let anyone know how you really feel and what's going on because if they find out, you're done. Fear of judgment. The narratives that we usually buy, even though they feel like they're keeping us safe, the truth is this. They're actually what feed shame and cause it to grow out of control. And so Brown says this. The way we deal with these narratives, three things, the reckoning, the rumble, and the revolution. Here's what the reckoning is. The reckoning begins with you and I re recognizing and knowing, understanding that, that we get hooked, right? That's the word she uses, that we get hooked emotionally. And we get hooked emotionally, right? We get triggered. We go into hideouts. We, we, we bring our insecurities with us. Our identity gets hijacked, right? We start to buy into a narrative. We've got to recognize when we get, when all of a sudden we get hooked, like we're getting drug around. We've got to recognize, hey, shame it, right now is trying to get on board in my life. And once we recognize that, here's what we do. We get curious. So the first part of the reckoning is to recognize. The second part of the reckoning is to get curious. You start to check the accuracy of the story that you're telling yourself. A reality check that asks this. What stories? This is, again, write this down. A reality check is this. Right? When, you start to, when you start to hear this narrative, you go, like, what, what stories? What stories am I making up and telling myself right now about what's happening? What am I making up? Is this true or not? So we have to recognize. We have to recognize I'm hooked. I'm triggered. I'm running from my hideout. I'm living in insecurity. Shame's trying to get on board in my life. My identity's being hijacked. I got to see this for what it is. And then the second thing I got to do in this moment is go, what am I believing that maybe isn't true? That's a hard thing to do. I know for me personally, that, that I'm just sitting in my notes. I'm just going to go there, right? For me personally, it was, it was recognizing, like, I got junk. And this is what it does to me. I got crap, and this is what it does to me. And I got to own that, right? It's not any, like, again, it's, it may not be my fault, but it is my responsibility to deal with it. So when we start to do that, we start to ask it questions. Are you real? No? Then get out. Stop. I'm not listening to it anymore. You're fake. That's when, we, that, that's when the reckoning starts to happen. Right? We recognize it for what it is, and we get curious, and we start asking it questions. The next thing is this, the rumble, right? As we start to ask these reality check questions, right, we start to wrestle with, we start to understand, we start to admit, we start to integrate the what and the why. See, when this happens, right, what, what we know is as we start to wrestle with this and we start to integrate this, like instead of trying to, to disintegrate or segregate the parts of our stories that we don't like, we go, you know what, that, that moment that moment when this happened, when they abused me, when they said this, or they hurt me, or they hit me, whatever this is, that moment, like it or not, is a part of my story. It's a part of who I am. We start to integrate that into our lives. We can own the what and the why. Like when blank happens, this is why, this is what I usually tell myself. 
When I get scared, this is what I tell myself, and this is why, right? What we do in that moment, in that rumble, is we pin that narrative down. The narrative is trying to take control, and we take it away, right? We talk about, I shared this with you before about crucible, right? The word we use is shadow. When we start to ask the shadow questions, we pull the shadow around in front of us, and we take away its superpower. When you start to pin this narrative down, you take away its superpower. You take control away from it. Instead of continuing down the track that the narrative wants to take you, you start to speak reality and truth to it. Don't go there. This isn't true. And then last is the revolution. Brown says the revolution happens when the process turns into practice, when it just becomes the rhythm that we live in. And she says that the most dangerous stories are the ones that challenge our lovability, our divinity, the fact that we're created in God's image, and our creativity. Right? The revolution says, just listen to this. The revolution says this, just because, and I, I guarantee you that some of us in the room, that, that this is what we buy. The revolution would say to you, just because someone in your life wasn't able to love you like you deserve to be loved, doesn't mean you're unlovable. Do you hear that? Just because a parent or a spouse wasn't able to love you like you deserve to be loved, doesn't make you unlovable. Just because people in your life might have treated you like a thing and not a person. Just because someone treated you like an object and they tossed you aside like you were worthless. Just because someone has done that to you, maybe they've told you that you have no purpose, it doesn't change the fact that you're an image bearer of God. Do you hear that? Just because they've said you're worthless just because you're told you're not smart enough, good enough, skilled enough, pretty enough, strong enough, doesn't change the fact that your Heavenly Father is so proud of you. Maybe you get told you're worthless. Maybe you get treated like an object. Here's what, here's what God says. You know what you're worth? The life of my son. How about that? When, when I had a choice between sacrificing him or not, me not, me not sacrificing him means I lose you. I'll sacrifice him. Because it means I get you. That's what God says you're worth. And like I said last week, church, hear this. It's not just that God loves you. He likes you. He likes you. And he's proud of you. We see this play out in David's life in Psalm 51. This is a song, a poem that David wrote kind of on the backside of this whole deal with Bathsheba. Here's what he says. He says, have mercy on me. O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Because I know, God, I know that I have transgressions. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me, right? Against you and you only, I've sinned and I've done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know what that tells us right there? David just did the reckoning and the rumble. David just recognized, here's a narrative I bought into. And it wasn't real. And I own it. Right? It may not be my fault, but it is my responsibility. It's my responsibility to correct this. That tells us right there, David did the reckoning and the rumble, but here comes the revolution. You ready for this? 
It says, behold, you delight in truth and inward being. You teach me wisdom in, my, in the secret heart. Purge me, right, with hyssop. That's a plant that they use to clean things. It says, and, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Get this, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore me to the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then here's what I'll do. Here's what I'll do. I will teach transgressors your way. I'll talk to other people who have sinned like I've sinned, and I will teach them. I will tell them my story, and we can sit down and we can have me too conversations. I get it. I understand. I'll teach them your way, and you know what? They'll return to you. It says, deliver me from my blood guiltiness. Oh God, oh God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will, not, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it, but here's what will please you, right? You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Here's what you want, a broken heart, a broken spirit, a contrite heart, that, oh God, you will not despise. Church, I don't know how long you've been listening to the narrative in your life. I don't know how far that narrative has drug you down the path. But I need you to understand, you are not too far gone. You are not so broken or so lost that God will not come search for you and find you. You're not done. You're not damaged goods. You're not beyond redemption. And I love this. God doesn't despise you. When you come to God with a broken heart, God, this hurt. He goes, I know. God, I was scared. I know. God, I've been lonely. I know. I thought you hated me. I don't. And I love the fact that Brene Brown says that when it comes to shame, empathy is the antidote. And you see David say this, right? empathy is the antidote. There are people, there are other people. David, David messed up big time. And he said, you know what? There are other people that have messed up like me. And here's what I'll do. I'll go tell them this story. And I'll tell them the story, God, about how you redeem, you rescue, re, you repurpose, you restore. You re I'll tell them that. I will tell that story. Some of us in the room, you can do that. There are some of us in the room that there's, there's a moment in our story that is so painful that maybe that, that at times we've been so ashamed of. And the truth is there's someone, there's someone in this room or there's someone in your life that you're the only person that can look at them and go, me too, I get it. But let me tell you about a God who never gives up. A God who doesn't lose. A God who doesn't stop searching for or, or reaching out or pursuing us. Let me tell you that story. Empathy is the antidote. Empathy is the antidote. And I love the fact that, that in Scripture, when it talks about Jesus, right, Hebrews tells us that Jesus can sympathize with us in every way. We have a high priest who gets everything about the human experience. And so when we go to Jesus and we go, Jesus, I'm hurt, he goes, I know exactly how that feels. Jesus does not look at us when we come to him in these moments with broken hearts and broken spirits and go, I don't know what this is like. Sorry. Jesus puts his arm around us and he whispers in our ears, I got gotcha, you, I understand. 
I don't condemn you, Jesus says. But you have to change the narrative. Church, that's what's on the table today. If you are done, if you are done living in the narrative, buying into the story that you've been telling yourself for years and years and years, today it can stop. Today the narrative can change. So we're going to worship here in just a second. But if you need prayer today, I would love to pray for you. We'd love to pray with you. Our elders would love to pray with you. Justin's in the back as well. We'd love to pray with you. But here's the deal. If today there's a place in you that goes, you know what, I just need the narrative to stop, would you meet us right here? We would love to pray for you. That's what we're going to do. Simple prayer. A simple prayer of truth. And we're going to invite you to spend time at the cross. If that's you, again, move. Make a move. Because if you just sit in your seat like you do every other Sunday and we listen to this and you get back in your car, guess what? That narrative is going to appear tomorrow and it's going gonna, it's gonna to start whispering in your ear again. If you want to make a change, today's the day to make a change. And if you want to make a change, meet me right here. If you want to join our church, if you want to be a part of our group therapy session, right, you can do that. I'd love to chat with you about that as well. I'm going to pray. We just want to meet you at the cross. I can't change you. I, I can't change it. Our elders, our staff, we can't change the narrative. But we know who can. And we just want to get you two together. That's it. So I'm inviting you. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. Jesus, you're good and we love you. You're too good. You're too good for you. You're too, your goodness, is it, just, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. So we just have to trust it with faith that you, that that even though everybody else has looked at us and said this, that, or the other, you say, I love you, I'm proud of you, you're mine. Jesus, I pray today that the narrative would stop for some of us in the room. It may be that someone, for whatever reason, wasn't able to love us like we needed to be loved, but that doesn't make us unlovable. It may be that someone, for whatever reason, treated us like an object and then tossed us out like we're worthless, but that doesn't change the fact that to you, we are worth the life of your son. God, someone may, people may have told us that we're not this enough, that enough, whatever it is, but it doesn't change the fact that when you look at us and you say, you're more than enough. Jesus, we love you. We want a, we want a new story. Thanks for making a new story possible. It's your name we pray. Amen. See my victory.